So, um, this is the fourth Sunday of our series called Free. It's the last of this message series where we have explored what it means to be formed in Christ, what it means to be redeemed by Christ, what it means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And today we are going to turn to the last E in the word free, which stands for hmm? encouragement. Thank you. You either read the screen or, <laughs> or you read the bulletin or something. You know, I had a hard time picking which word I wanted to use. Um, I thought about the word exhort. I thought about the word edify. But those are churchy words, and we all kind of get what encouragement means. And they're essential. We need to recognize every day that we are encouraged continuously by God, not just so we feel good and hopeful and courageous, but so we can encourage others. And so I'm going to begin today um, in Romans 15. We've been teaching from the book of Romans throughout this series. And we're going to land in Romans 15 today for some words from Paul about what encouragement means. And this is what he said. And he said this in response to the fact that people who were becoming Christ followers in Rome were not encouraging one another. He said this because they were bickering over what was appropriate and inappropriate to eat. And it was created by the divide between the Christians who came from the Jewish faith and the Christians who were coming from pagan religions. And the um, Christians, the new Christians who were coming from the pagan religions, couldn't understand why the Jewish backgrounded Christians were so hung up about what, it, what was okay to eat and what wasn't okay to eat. They were just hung up about it. They were worried about the Jewish laws they had been following, and they believed that all people who were Christ follows, followers should follow the Jewish law with regard to what food was pure and impure, while the Christians who came from the pagan background couldn't understand what these hang-ups were about and thought that the Jewish people were actually, the Jewish people who were becoming Christians were weak because they were still hung up about Jewish law. And this is what Paul wrote. He said, we who are strong must be considerate of those who are sensitive about things like this. We must not just please ourselves. We should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord, for even Christ didn't live to please himself. The scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. May God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with each other, as is fitting for followers of Jesus Christ. So these words remind us that God and scriptures encourage us, but they also remind us that we are to take that encouragement and what we learn in scripture, and we are to encourage others and push them on on their own Christian journeys. You know, throughout the Bible, we read about times when God encouraged people, especially God's leaders. And one of my, my favorite passages in the Bible, in the Old Testament, comes from the book of Joshua. It's a time when um, Moses has died, Joshua is about to take over 
to fulfill the mission that Moses began by leading the people across the river into the promised land. And God is speaking encouraging words into Joshua. And I love these words so much that I've asked Grant Corrigan to carve them for me, to cut them for me into a wood plaque that I have hanging in my office at home. Because there's times when life's a little rough or feeling a little down or the trials seem too much that those words help remind me that I'm not alone. And this is what God said to Joshua and what God continues to say to us every day. He said, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. God will be with you wherever you go. And these words are just as true today as they were for Joshua. And they've been emphasized and reinforced by Jesus Christ our Lord in the words that he spoke to his disciples just before he ascended into heaven in the words we read at the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 28 after he gives them the great commission to go out and make disciples and baptize people he says and I will be with you always to the end of the age I will be with you always to the end of the age. And we are disciples too, and those words are spoken to us for our encouragement. But we aren't just encouraged so we live contented lives and happy lives. We are encouraged so that we can become encouragers to others. Near the end of Joshua chapter 23, many years have passed, the Israelites were indeed led into the promised land by Joshua. They had lots of great victories, but Joshua is getting ready to close his eyes for the last time, and he gathers the people together, and he offers words to them that are encouraging, just as he had been encouraged so many decades before by God. And this is what he said, be very strong. Doesn't that sound similar? God said to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Now he's looking at the people of Israel who he's about to leave, and he says, be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. But you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. So here we see Joshua not only encouraging the people to be strong and brave, but he's also encouraging them about what they should not do. He's giving them some don'ts. Don't worship other God. Don't assimilate into other cultures. Stay on the straight and narrow path. And that's part of the purpose for our encouragement. Now, when we turn today, we can look at a, a more modern story of encouragement, and it's not um, particularly biblically based, although it certainly had an influence on a man who became a great Christian writer as an adult. And I'm talking about Bob Goff, who wrote a book called Love Does. 
And it just so happens right now that the staff of the church is doing a weekly devotion by looking at different chapters in this book. And wouldn't you know, God does what God always does. This particular chapter this week that we just dug into on Tuesday was about encouragement. And when God does that, I pay attention. That's not a coincidence. That's what we call a God wink. So what this, in this chapter, Bob describes how, as a young boy, he was a big kid, and he was going to play Little League Baseball. And he was terrible. Just terrible. He batted last. He couldn't catch. He couldn't hit. He couldn't field. He played right field because he couldn't catch very well. And when he came up to bat, he could never hit the ball because as the pitch was coming toward him, he always shut his eyes. Now, Joshua Van Dyne can tell us that does not work. When you close your eyes, you don't hit the ball. But he used to get on base occasionally because he'd crowded the plate. For those of you who played baseball, he'd crowd in over the plate, raise the bat, he'd lean in, and he'd get hit by the ball. And when a pitcher hits you, you get to go to first. And that was about his only valuable contribution to the team, and that's not one that people typically cheer, although sometimes when he came to the plate, the crowd would chant, hit him, hit him, hit him. Well, one day he went up to the plate, and he decided, nope, I'm going to swing away. So he got in there, and he put the bat on his shoulder, and the ball started coming, and yeah, he shut his eyes, but he swung as hard as he could, the bat hit the ball, and it was a home run. It was the only hit he ever got. And he rounded the bases. He galloped around the bases. It was a great moment. The team went on to lose the game, so it wasn't like that base-clearing, game-winning home run. But it meant a lot to him. But it meant a lot to him later when he received a card in the mail from his coach. And the card was a Hallmark card shaped like an apple, and it said, You are the apple of my eye. And then within the body of the card, the coach wrote a handwritten note that said, Wow, what a hit, Bob. You're a real ball player. Love, coach. So we have this young boy who can't field, who has one hit, whose best asset is crowding the plate and getting hit by a pitch to get to first base. And the coach tells him, What a hit. You're a real ball player. Now, Bob Boff didn't go on to become a great ball player. He stopped playing baseball a few years later, but he still has the card because he remembers at a time when he was kind of gawky and not good at something he was trying to do, an adult who could have put him down or benched him or been part of the crowd that groaned when he came up to the plate, that coach loved him and encouraged him. He taught him how to have confidence how to feel valuable, and to know that he was loved. And as a church, it's our job to do the very same thing for the people we meet, whether inside the church or out, and for our brothers and sisters who we see inside the church when they're going through a hard time. Bob Goff ended the chapter of this particular story with these words, and they're so true. He said, the words people say to us not only have shelf life, but they have the ability to shape life. They have shelf life. They stay with us a long time. I can remember things that my high school coach said to me, I'm not even going to tell you how many years ago, but it was more than 45. 
I can remember things people said to me when I was contemplating going into ministry, when I was already in my 50s, and I thought, man, it's way too late. The words we say to others have shelf life. They're lasting. And they have the ability to shape life. They can change our outlook in ways that change our lives. We can encourage people to be hopeful, to be strong in their faith, to be generous with others, and to serve. And all of those things come through in a passage from Hebrews in the New Testament, where the writer of Hebrews says this, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And the interesting thing is, if you look at that little piece of scripture, Hebrews 10, verses 25, 23 to 25, and you look at those few verses in multiple Bible translations, in some of them it says, um, spur one another on, encourage one another. In some it says, exhorting one another. Exhorting is enthusiastic encouragement, okay? Sometimes the word that you use is comforting one another. Comforting is a form of gentle encouragement, especially for someone who's hurting. The word spurring on conjures up its own image. And then there's one I really like. It says provoking one another, provoking one another toward love and good deeds. And we think of the word provoke as negative, but it really fits in this context, and I know that in my personal life, because those of you who knew my husband Bruce knew he wasn't all that inclined to come to church, but I came to church every Sunday morning, and I participated, and I thought I wanted to become a minister because God was calling me, and ultimately I talked to him about it a lot, and it provoked him. I promise you, those of you who know, it provoked him, and it provoked him to join me at church on some Sundays. And it provoked him so much that one day he said to me, hey, you and Patty Martin need to go get a pedicure. Have them come over here. I want to talk to Bob. And the conversation was about getting baptized, and I promise you, friends, I provoked him into it, and sometimes he was really provoked. And you guys can laugh, Carol and Ed. You know Bruce, and you know what I'm talking about. But the end result was good, and it was kind provoking. It was provoking in the best sense of the word. But sometimes we just have to encourage others by badgering just a little bit, okay? You know, our job as mature believers is to encourage other people in the faith. We don't walk this walk alone. We need helpers. So you might look at me and say, okay, well, what is a mature believer? Well, a mature believer is someone who spends time studying scripture. A mature believer is someone who attends worship regularly, whether here in person or online. A mature believer is someone who prays for others and prays for themselves. A mature believer is someone who makes plenty of time in their day in and day out life to continue pursuing growth as a disciple and ways to serve other people. 
A mature believer is someone who lives according to what we call John Wesley's general rules for the Methodist Church. John Wesley was the founder of Methodism. He had three general rules, and it's really interesting what the first one is. It's do no harm. First, do no harm, kind of like doctors. The reason that's the first one is because too often people who profess Jesus as Lord and Savior don't behave in ways that act the way Jesus acted. They're not hospitable. They're judgmental. They turn people away by making people like they're, feel like they're too much of a sinner or too far out there to be acceptable to the Lord. And when the church does that, it does harm. So John Wesley's first rule was do no harm. And then his second rule was do all the good you can. And he focused good around the ideas of serving others. In his day, um, they did service in prisons and in orphanages for children. And then his last rule was attend to the ordinances of God. The sacraments, worship, studying scripture, and prayer. Sometimes we mistakenly believe, though, that we become mature Christians by virtue of our age. And the reason I just shared with you the story about Bruce is because when Bruce asked to have that conversation with Bob Martin, he was already 77 years old. And I will tell you where he was at that point in time in his faith journey. He was not as mature a Christian as the teens we sent to Orlando this week who served. It's not an age-based attainment. It's based on how we worship, how we study, how we live our lives, and how we read. And so being a mature believer is a really important thing, and one of the roles we accept as mature believers is to encourage others. But there's a couple of other things important about this. Not only are we to encourage others, we are not to discourage them. And I found this wonderful passage from a book in the Old Testament that describes what happens when people are, who are someone's supposed friend criticize him, attack him, find fault with him, make excuses for why he's having troubles. Can anyone guess who I'm talking about? Anybody? How about Job? Okay? Job was a man who had it all. He fell from a lofty place, but he was a good man, and there was no apparent reason for why he fell, and I'm not going to go into the whole story of Job. But he was in a situation that was worse possible. He lost his family. He lost his wealth, he lost his estate, he lost his health, and three friends came alongside of him, but shortly their encouragement turned into discouragement. And this is how he responded to them. And this is from Job chapter 16. He said, I've heard many things like these. You are miserable comforters, all of you. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? I also could speak like you if you were in my place. I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you, but my mouth would encourage you. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. So along with encouraging others, we need to learn not to discourage others. And then the third thing we need to learn is that we should not encourage others to do the wrong things. 
Because what happens when people encourage others to do the wrong things is you have a whole series of people like we find in Kings chapter 2 and in Chronicles where it's telling us the history of Israel and the different kings that led. And first there's a good king and then there's a bad king and then there's a good king and then there's a bad king. But here's what the scripture tells us about one of the bad kings. And this is from 2 Chronicles chapter 22. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king. His mother was Athaliah. Azahiah also followed the evil example of King Ahab's family, for his mother encouraged him in doing wrong. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Just as Ahab's family had done, they even became his advisors after the death of his father, and they led him to ruin. Some kings lasted a long time. Ahaziah lasted one year. His mother encouraged him to do wrong. King Ahab's family encouraged him to do wrong. And we have a duty not to encourage people to do the wrong thing. Not to offer whiskey to the alcoholic. Not to encourage a businessman who's struggling to cheat on his taxes or to cheat his customers. Not to judge or condemn a sinner looking down on them but to encourage them gently in humility, recognizing that we're sinners too. So we're to encourage others, we're not to discourage others, and we're not to encourage others to do the wrong thing. What does a community look like when people are encouraging to one another? How can we be encouraging? First of all, we do it by both our words and our actions. I didn't hear one word spoken by the students who went to Orlando this week. But when I watched the video of them doing what they're doing, which you can see on the Lighthouse Student Ministry Facebook page, I was encouraged by their actions. I couldn't hear anything they were saying. Paul's picture of kingdom living, which we find in Romans chapter 12, and this is the last scripture from Romans um, before we wrap up this series, describes the kind of kingdom where people encourage one another and live life to their fullest in Christ. This is what he wrote. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Does, not, does that not describe a community where you would be encouraged every day just by virtue of what the community did together and what individuals did for one another? I love the particular uh, phrase where he says, help those in need and be hospitable and bless others. We try to do that in various ministries at St. Paul. And I always, in July, I highlight the Jubilee. 
just because it happens in early August. It helps kids going back to school have the supplies, the encouragement, and the backpacks they need. There is nothing more discouraging to a child than to show up at school on the first day of a school year and be different from everyone else by not having the school supplies they were supposed to bring. So I encourage you again, as I did last week, if you have the time, please spend some time helping us pack the backpacks, work through the supplies, plan on being here for two and a half hours on Saturday morning, August 7th, as we give the backpacks out. And if you can't get out shopping for supplies, then we encourage you to make a donation for those supplies. It's a way to do exactly what Paul described in this scripture. You know, I want to finish today by talking about something that just came up Friday or Saturday. And um, I changed the last piece of this message this morning, driving over the Bel Air Causeway Bridge. And I changed it because I received a request through um, email to pray a prayer this morning that has to do with what's going on in Cuba. And I didn't connect the dots with just saying this prayer, I was going to say it before this sermon, with this message series. But it does. It does connect to this message series. Because the people in Cuba don't have a 4th of July like we do. They don't celebrate religious freedom and the right to vote and do all the things that we sometimes take for granted. And in the early messages of this series, I tried to point out to you how freedom in Christ is different than the kind of freedom we celebrate on the 4th of July. But that was brought into clear, stark relief for me when I thought about the people in Cuba. Many Florida United Methodist churches have a sister, Cuba, a sister church in Cuba. And I know many pastors and lay people who have gone on trips to those churches who come back marveling at how much the people are hopeful, how much they are helpful and encouraging to one another, how they worship on Sunday morning in a building with no air conditioning for three or four hours, or they worship out in the open, rain or shine, or they, um, they worship under things that are kind of built like our picnic shelters at our parks. They know that real freedom comes from Jesus, and they worship Jesus wholeheartedly. And so I'd like to end this series today with this prayer for Cuba, but also as a reminder to us that the freedom we find in Christ surpasses and overcomes any freedom we can receive from a government and any debilitating oppression that government can offer. And to enjoy that kind of freedom is to be free indeed. Let's pray. Lord, the people of Cuba and our sister Methodist churches suffer as they watch their children's cries for freedom being silenced through violence, imprisonment, and death. And yet freedom is a promise in Jesus Christ and abundant life is an assurance of the Holy Spirit. You have inspired us to abide within a covenant in which we are Methodists, united in prayer. Now we join with our brothers and sisters in the island of Cuba as we pray that you will break the chains that attempt to drown your people, that those in authority will turn 
from their love of power and seek salvation in you, that you will give your church the boldness to be light in the darkness and the courage to witness for Christ. Hear our prayer, O Lord, and make us one in communion with you and one another. These things we pray in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.